Well, hopefully your Bibles are still open to uh, Luke chapter 11, where Rusty read, as we continue through Luke's gospel. We saw uh, when we began that Luke has set out to give what he considers an orderly account of Jesus' ministry, and he's been very intentional in how he has laid uh, out the ministry and the life of Jesus so far. Uh, And really, these last few incidents, these last few messages, he has tied together the sovereignty and the uh, providence of God. When we looked at uh, chapter 10, uh, the Good Samaritan, we saw it was really an, uh, an illustration uh, for the lawyer who was uh, uh, challenging him about the law. And so he gives the uh, illustration of the Good Samaritan and uh, bringing... Um, being a, a neighbor to everyone that God's providence puts in your way. So it's a f- picture of the providence of God in your life, in my life, and the people and circumstances he puts in our way. Then at the end of the Martha and Mary story where Mary is eagerly listening to the word of God. So he takes the providence of God and then he applies to us uh, the emphasis or the impetus to hear and uh, to listen to eagerly to the words of the Lord. And then the Lord's Prayer, uh, uh, seeking the disciples were seeking fellowship with the Father. And so Jesus lays that out. So we have the providence of God, the fellowship with God. We have listening to the Word of God. And now, all of a sudden, Satan appears in this episode with Jesus where he is casting out uh, the demons. Uh, And the various responses, there's three responses really here, uh, and I'll read some of the other passages we come to it. Uh, We're going to go all the way down to 32, hopefully this morning. Uh, But there's three responses beginning with, uh, well, if we count the crowd, in verse 14, the people marveled. They're amazed at what has taken place. And then there's three more responses. Explaining away Jesus' works, asking for signs, and what Luke is doing is he is putting the two Israels side by side, those who are believing Israel and those who are unbelieving Israel. Puts them side by side. As we see these different responses, there's an amazement and then there's a rejection. There is a declaration of the uh, blessing upon his mother because of who her son is, And then there's the Jews asking for a sign. So we have these two uh, opposing senses in their response to the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Before we go uh, 
begin at verse 14. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we look into his word. Father, we do thank you for your word. As we listen to it, it energizes us. It exposes us. It's the best thing or the good thing that we hear your word and then respond with obedience. We thank you for your working in the life of your people, your providence that brings before us all that we need to continue on our journey of faith. As we have opportunities to respond to uh, that providence, that uh, organizing and orchestrating the circumstances of our life, Father, we need more and more to trust that you are doing just what we need to make us like your son. And in the fellowship that we desire through prayers, we approach your throne. Lord, in one sense, boldly. And in another sense, cautiously. But how you've laid out a model for us to approach you. Now we come to a challenge. Challenge of your word, a challenge of your son, a challenge of your work in the world. Lord, I pray that you would help us, each one, to see ourselves, to think about the circumstances you put before us and our responses. Help us to learn. Learn from those whose trust is deepened and learn from those who turn away. Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning that you would use uh, my voice that you would fill me with your spirit that we might hear from you. Others, we think about our day, we think about tomorrow, the, the, the day of uh, birthday, somewhat celebrating Abraham Lincoln and George Washington's birthday. Lord, we pray for our government, whether it be in our cities, in our counties, in our state, or our federal government. Father, your word tells us you've put each one in their place. They will answer to you for that position you've given them. Lord, I pray for all of them 
that they would understand the gravity of, the, of, of their position. And Lord, we each have a calling. There's the calling for the Christians to be holy as you're holy. Impossible, yet in the power of the Spirit, you enable us. Those who are not yours, the call to come to Christ, who alone can save them from their sins. Father, have your way this morning with each and every one. Glorify yourself in us and through us. And we thank you for the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail as we see in this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus has cast out a demon there in verse 14. The demon came out. It was a demon that had caused this uh, man that it inhabited to be mute. Uh, we also get uh, from uh, Matthew uh, that he was uh, blind. So he's blind, he's mute, all because of this uh, demon that possesses him, that is indwelling <clears throat> in him. And so... Uh, the demon that was mute, when the demon had gone out, Jesus cast the demon out, the man spoke and the people marveled. So there we see the transformation of the man. The man, you know, we talk about men who are uh, men of few words. Well, this fellow was no words. He had no words. He did not speak at all. Uh, and now he's speaking. The demon has been cast out. He's been giving, given language. He's able to speak now, and, uh, and he's no longer blind, according to the Matthew uh, passage. He is completely healed, transformed, and the people are amazed. They marvel. They're awed. There's fear in the presence of the one who has uh, performed this miracle. In, uh, once again in Matthew, the, the crowd says, could this be the son of David? Is this the Messiah? They're putting two and two together, what he's been doing, what he just did, reminding themselves of the prophets in their Bibles, the Old Testament. And so we might be thinking, you know, can this be the son of David as the crowd marvels this Revival is coming. This crowd that has been following them with some believers and some unbelievers, following him for different reasons. Are they going to follow Christ all the way now by this obvious miracle that he has performed? Well, we see that the answer is no. Everything is not harmonious. Verse 15, some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of 
demons. That's one response to this miracle. We have a, the crowd is by and large amazed, and yet these uh, some say he's cast out demons by Beelzebul. Beelzebul uh, being Satan himself. Beelzebul was originally a god of the Philistines that we meet in the uh, in Second Kings. We know from Matthew and Mark, these are scribes and Pharisees who've come down from Jerusalem to where Jesus is. These folks who have been entrusted with preserving the Word of God, with uh, teaching the Word of God, studying the Word of God, applying it to the lives of the people every day and in the community, uh, making the prophets prophecies clear to the people. That was their charge, pointing out the characteristics of their coming Messiah. But they're worried about this Jesus. It becomes clearer and clearer that he can cast out demons, that he can heal the sick, that he teaches with authority, and they're well aware that his authoritative teaching in many places are not, is not in line with their teachings. Jesus claimed authority that they thought was theirs alone. And so they begin to spread the rumor, if you will. He casts out demons by Beelzebub. It's black magic. He's not really... A, got these powers. He is just trying to trick you. He's trying to fool you. Powers aren't given by God. Whatever powers he has, they're given by Satan. The prince of demons is Beelzebul. And telling the people, instead of following him, you should run the other way. And these are religious leaders. These are the, uh, uh, the theologians and the scholars of the day Opposing the work of God, willfully opposing the work of God, vehemently, strongly displaying their prejudice. They come down from Jerusalem to this scene. They have their preconceived notions that Jesus is evil. The obvious is closed to their eyes. They're unbelievers. And they're blinded by the God of this world. What's really amazing is, this is just the classic expression of unbelief. This is uh, the one who came, the incarnate God, incarnate Son of God. He came to heal, to, to heal the oppressed, to heal the sick. To take the gospel that will transform their lives. To seek and to save that which was lost. He's willing to undergo the cruelest of tortures that man can devise. And these religious experts deem that he is possessed by Satan. That's the way Mark says it. He's possessed by the devil working miracles by the power of Beelzebul. 
back later on when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, this triumphal entry to the praises of the people, in particular, the praises of the children. The chief priests and scribes, they're outraged that Jesus is allowing them to worship him. So Jesus quotes Psalm 8, verse 2, out of the mouth of babes you have prepared praise. Many of, most of you here are PBC folks. You've been here regular. We, some of you have not. If you're wondering or questioning about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection, maybe. It, did it really happen? Ask our children. They know the answers. And it's out of these babes that these religious leaders will hear the truth that they have rejected. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And we come to him and we say, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. My belief is not always full. Help us, Lord. We pray and his critics hate him. They're blinded to who he is. They hate him because there's crowds are following him. They hate him because he's claiming to be God, claiming prerogatives that are for God only. He didn't honor their traditions that they added to the scriptures. He associates with the wrong kind of people, with publicans, with sinners. These leaders should have known better. But again, they're unbelievers. This man is transformed before their eyes. There's no question he couldn't speak. And there's no question that now he is speaking. They couldn't. Deny it, but they declare he's doing this by tricks. He's an illusionist. He's a, a magician. Much like Simon in uh, Samaria, when Philip goes to Samaria in Acts 8 and takes the gospel to the uh, Gentile people, the Samaritans, Simon the magician has been practicing his black magic in Samaria, and the crowds have marveled over what he's been able to do. As the gospel comes, many are uh, believing. Many come to believe. And Acts records, Luke records in Acts. Simon believed and he was baptized. And he followed Philip around and those who were proclaiming the gospel News came to Jerusalem, the Samaria, some Samaritans had been saved. Peter and John are sent to uh, Samaria. They lay hands on these Gentiles. The Spirit had not yet come to them. Special situation. And they received the Holy Spirit. And Simon says, I want that. I'll buy that from you. See, Simon had just added some of Jesus to his repertoire of magic. Well, 
These should know better, these religious leaders right here. The crowd is amazed. Isn't this what the prophets spoke to us about? Isn't this what the Messiah would come and do, according to Isaiah? Religious leaders are telling the crowd, this is not what you think. They couldn't deny that something had happened to this man. But, it says, by the work of the devil. And so, if you look at verse 17, Jesus knowing their thoughts, there's another uh, evidence of his deity. He knew their thoughts. And he answers their uh, opposition with three ifs. If you notice there in the text, there's three ifs. Verse 17, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household fails or falls. I would say this, that uh, civil war is a killer. Whether it's in a kingdom the kingdom of Satan, whether it's in a nation, whether it's in your homes. Divided against itself, no family can stand. Divided against itself, no nation can stand. And certainly Jesus uses this logic and says, no kingdom will stand if it's divided. Verse 18. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out by Beelzebub. If Satan is divided against himself, Satan's evil, but he's not crazy, Jesus is saying. Think this through. He's recruited an army of demons. He's used these demons. These demons have now possessed people to accomplish his work, the work of his kingdom. Is he really undoing his work now by casting out his minions from these uh, victims? Makes no sense at all, Jesus says. Then he goes on in verse 19, if I cast out demon by demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Um, we don't know for sure who the sons are, probably followers of the uh, religious leaders or maybe rabbis who are these uh, Jewish exorcists. But his point here is, you're going, I'm casting out demons, you're going to say it's by Beelzebub, by the devil. What about your guys who are casting out, who are performing exorcisms, are you going to say the same thing about them? Are they doing it by evil powers? And he says, if you don't, if you have this double standard, notice what he says there at the end of verse 19, they will be your judges. They'll see your hypocrisy. They'll reject your uh, claims. So, if Satan's divided against Satan, that kingdom will fall. That's not what's happening, Jesus says. Are you going to hold a double standard between me and your guys who are doing the same thing? He says, how about this? Verse 20. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then 
The kingdom of God has come upon you. There's the third if. And this is a sense. If it's by the finger of God, the kingdom has come. The king has arrived. Matthew also says that if it's by the Holy Spirit that I cast out demons. So the finger of God in Luke is uh, the, uh, the uh, Holy Spirit in Matthew. And so it's by the power of God, he says, the demons are being cast out. That proved the work of a sovereign God. It doesn't say the kingdom has come near. He says the kingdom has arrived. You know, in, in Luke 4, we saw months ago, Jesus' first synagogue sermon that's recorded for us. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, he sits down and says, today this is being fulfilled. He's about to see these things happen now, he told them. The blind will see, the captives will be liberated. And the response is mixed. He's run out of Nazareth when he preached that sermon or when he made that statement. And these religious leaders say, we don't want that. We don't want you. Jesus didn't fit the bill for them as they're picturing the Messiah who was to come. He's not according to their expectation, born in a manger in a little obscure village born to a peasant girl, family of no uh, status. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth where Jesus grew up? And then at 30 comes on into public ministry, the stage of human history, going to all the wrong people's houses, hanging out with the riffraff, no better, telling them there's no better preacher than John the Baptist. You know that offended those Pharisees and scribes. So they sought to discredit Jesus. He claims that their account of his ministry is false. They said he's in league with the devil. Jesus says wrong. It's the Holy Spirit of God who is in your midst. And then verse 21 and 22, he says, here's what's really happening in this episode right here. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. That verse, the strong man is Satan. When Satan is in charge, when he is fully armed, he's guarding the souls and the bodies of those he, his demons have inhabited. These demon-possessed victims, they're safe and secure in the hands of this strong man. Verse 22, but... When one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. These demon-possessed folks are safely in Satan's hands. 
until a stronger man comes. And that stronger man, of course, is the Lord Jesus. He strips their armor. Mark and Matthew both say he binds this strong man, renders him powerless, carries away his armor, and he says that's, what hap- that's what's happening in the case of this man. The power of God has come and broken the chains of the strong man. A stronger man has arrived. The kingdom of God has come. And Jesus is stronger than that strong man. He's proven to be stronger than that strong man in the desert. Temptations. Satan thought he could take him out there in the wilderness and uh, overpower him. Thought he could bring him down, but Jesus sends him off. And that's the story of the whole Bible ever since Genesis 3.15. The devil is a defeated foe. Well, uh, Colossians 2, verse 13, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Then he set aside This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He he took took Satan's armor away from him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He's disarmed these minions of the strong man made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, though this strong man is now defeated, though he's bound by the power of God, he's not completely impotent. His power is limited. His final destiny is sure. It's fixed. His greatest weapon... Death, the fear of death, is being destroyed here today. It has been destroyed. There's now no need for any Christian to fear death. In death, we just wake up in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Death has been conquered. Probably on Easter we'll see death cannot keep its prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose. And it's a mighty triumph over his foes. A victor of the dark domain. And he lives forever with his saints to reign. Christ arose. The resurrection is the basis of any hope we have. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who came and accomplished redemption and the Spirit of God applies it to the life of His people. And we live with an eternal hope. Paul 
writes, 1 Corinthians 15, he writes about the resurrection. If Christ is, is not risen, we're still in our sins. If Christ is not risen, those who've died have gone on to a lost eternity. If Christ is not risen, there's no message for us at all. No message to tell. But Christ has risen. And we have a message to tell. Not a message of good advice that will help you put your life in order. Not a message that simply is being nice to other people. Although that should be the fruit of a life who is, that is saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit who will produce his fruit in the life of his people. Jesus transforms lives. He doesn't just change the externals of our lives. He transforms from the inside out. And because he did that to this man, the crowd is marveling. The crowd is amazed. And then verse 23 comes and what he essentially tells us is there's no neutral ground for the life in life, in the battle between Satan and the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. No neutral ground. We're in a war. It's a struggle between Satan and God. The Lord Jesus and the devil. If you're not on the side of the Lord Jesus, then you're against him. How many try to straddle that fence? Compromise, uh, putrefies. It dilutes the gospel. And God will judge the compromiser. When the sons of God marry the daughters of men, what happens? The flood comes. When, when King Saul brings, brings a half-obedient sacrifice, offerings in partial obedience, He's rejected as king. When Peter plays the hypocrite in, Galatia, in, in uh, Antioch, where he eats with the Gentiles until the leaders come from Jerusalem and then he isolates himself from the, from the, uh, leader, from the Gentiles. Paul rebukes him, but good, for playing the hypocrite. Because he compromised the doctrine of salvation. Friendship with the world is in enmity with God, making us enemies of God. So compromise confuses people, confuses the truth of the gospel, and therefore, as he says, scatters the sheep. 
Whoever does not gather with me scatters. The ultimate determination of your destiny, your, your eternity, is determined by your perseverance. Now we persevere, not because we're strong. We persevere because God preserves us and keeps us, right? Steadfast loyalty gathers them in. The Bible insists, that's why the Bible insists that every person believe in the Lord Jesus Christ exhorts you, he exhorts me to trust his sacrifice. Calls people to turn to Christ in repentance and faith so that having been rebellious against God, we may be transformed by the grace, mercy, love of the Lord Jesus. That we might become part of his army adopted into his family and are part of a different group in which or with which we spend our lives. Everyone who needs to be saved, and that's everyone, before you were saved, or if you're not saved, You're kept under guard in the palace of the strong man. It may not be obvious that you're held in his grip, but it doesn't mean you're any less held in his grip. It's only by the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ the power of the Spirit who He sends to indwell, that we are uh, released from the grip of Satan and enter into the grip of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But notice uh, this man who no longer has a demon, who can now speak, notice verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house. Notice he says, what he says, I will return to my house. The one that I was possessing, he's cast out. He goes around, wandering around in arid places. Can't find anyone to... Possessed, so he comes back to his house, the original one. I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. This man who has the demon cast out is able to speak, is... Uh, instantaneously made new, he's not completely out of danger. This exercised demon looks for a home, can't find it, a new home. 
returns to his house. It's clean, but it's empty. Nothing else residing there. No one, uh, 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 it's just a nice clean house. So he goes and gets seven of his friends who are more evil than himself and brings the man into a deeper bondage that he had yet not known. So warning to this man, this little uh, illustration here that Jesus gives, so warning to this man down through the ages to each, uh, to others, Jesus demands entire devotion. You can't rid yourself just of certain habits and improve. You can, and you can improve your life some, but that's not what Jesus does, and it won't last. He takes the demon out, but then he also sends the spirit in to bar the doors where no more can the uh, demons enter in. The Lord Jesus justifies us, but he not only justifies us, he declares us righteous in his sight. He indwells us by the Spirit of God, and that Spirit of God produces fruit in our lives, a, trans- a life being transformed. So that's the story there in the warning. As Jesus says, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that I am able to do these things. The kingdom of God has come. The strong man is now bound. He's limited by the sovereignty of God. But he has to bring in the grace to continue or that demon may come back with seven of his friends and it'll be worse than four. Well, verse 27 and 28, the the religious leaders hate Jesus and they claim that he's doing the work by uh, Satan. That's one response to casting out the demon. Verse 27 gives us another response. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Here's a second response. A lady, she's, uh, she blesses Jesus' mother. Can't restrain herself. She stands up in the middle of this crowd, unashamedly, courageously. She takes her stand against the rulers of the age, the hostile Jewish leaders, and pronounces a blessing on Mary. Because she has this blessed son. That's what Elizabeth said about Mary. Filled with the Holy Spirit, she blessed Mary. You remember? As Mary visits her, they're both with child. Bless Mary and the fruit of her womb also. But the lady's statement didn't, wasn't complete. Pronounces, she pronounces a blessing on Mary, also on Jesus. And Jesus doesn't reject, really reject her blessing, her assessment. Verse 28, but Jesus says, but he said, blessed rather, or uh, Mark says, more than that, Jesus blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
He simply adds to what she says. Blessed is this woman. And Jesus says, yes, that's true. But it's more than that. Blessed is everyone. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus widens the blessing to everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus, in himself. There's, also, there's a higher relationship than family ties. The relationship in the spirit that creates a closer bond than blood can ever make. So he widens it again to all believers. Mary was blessed to have Jesus as her son. But her blessing was due primarily because she listened to the word of God and surrendered herself to God's will. Her faith was real, and that's what counts. Hearing and keeping the word of God brings blessing. Think about Mary and her blessing to have Jesus as son. Her heart was broken as she watched her son on the cross cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As they drove the nails, as they stuck his side with the spear. Yes, she's blessed to have him as a son, but she's more blessed because he died for her sins and she believed it. And then back in verse 16, I just kind of skipped over another, the third response that we have in this passage. Uh, Verse 15, some, some said that he cast out demons by Beelzebub, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Just sets that there. Luke sets that there. And now in verse 29, he answers. Here's a response to these sign seekers. Verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, notice the crowds are still increasing. He's on his way to Jerusalem. The crowds, are, he's gaining uh, people following him. He began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and beheld something greater than Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the third response is these sign seekers. Give us a sign. And Jesus essentially rebukes them, calls them an evil generation. They're looking for material proof. They want something spectacular, something fantastic to happen. At least that's what they say. Their request is the result, he says, of being uh, an evil generation. Uh, 
Matthew says an evil and an adulterous generation. They had committed adultery with their husband, Lord God, Jehovah. Israel had many of them unfaithful to him. This request was evil because, a couple of reasons. One, they're standing right in front of, the, of a sign that he is who he says he is. They got a man talking who couldn't talk before. The demon's gone. But there's already been many signs ever since that sermon in uh, the Nazareth synagogue. Jesus has been uh, healing. Jesus has been uh, casting out demons. Jesus has been raising, he's raised the dead. Besides a f- clear fulfillment of prophecy in his, in his ministry, in his life, he's teaching with authority like no one's ever heard before. They've been given plenty of signs. Paul says the Jews seek, ask for signs. They ask for attesting miracles. Well, no wonder Jesus says no sign but Jonah. You had plenty of signs. You've been, many of you have been following me. You Pharisees and scribes, you know what's been happening these almost three years that I've been ministering. You don't want a sign. This sign of Joe, no sign but Jonah, of course, that implies the resurrection, right? Matthew 12, 40. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So this sign of Jonah, yes, Jonah preached and Nineveh repented, a pagan city. But the real sign coming from Jonah will be as Jonah was three days and three nights in the fish and God rescued him the Lord Jesus will be three days and three nights in the grave and God will rescue him. I think about the uh, rich young ruler. No, 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 no. Rich man in Lazarus. We'll see him later on in Luke. If you remember, the rich man dies and goes to Hades and the beggar man is in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man says, ooh, this is bad. Send me a drop of water. No, we can't. Abraham says, can't cross that divide. There's a great gulf fixed and there's no crossing over once this life is over. You're either here or you're there. No, nothing in between. He says, well, look, I got five brothers and they're on their way to this hell that I'm in. Why don't you send him down and tell them that this is bad? that they're on the wrong track. At least if someone came back from the dead, my brothers would believe. And Abraham says, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if someone comes back from the dead. A sign is never enough. There always needs to be another sign and another sign and another sign. 
the only sign that's powerful enough to convince is the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You know, we can ask, when did the death of Jesus and his resurrection become powerful to convince the apostles? And the answer, as we see, everything play itself out. It wasn't until the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit of God came. When Jesus was arrested, the disciples scattered. When he's resurrected, his resurrection gathered them back again, but they locked themselves in the room. They were happy, but they were scared. They were fearful. They didn't grasp or apprehend what has happened in the cross. Even after he was resurrected, they did not yet get it until the Holy Spirit of God fell on Pentecost. It was then that the sign became so powerful. It became a prevailing sign. The Holy Spirit of God invaded them. He's the one who takes the ultimate sign, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The Spirit comes and convinces them. He convicts them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And they then become dynamos in the kingdom of God. They then not perfect, but they become faithful in the kingdom of God, no longer afraid confidently living as disciples of Jesus Christ, the next generation to take the gospel to the world. The Holy Spirit makes it a definite proof of everything about Jesus Christ. They had an immediate sign right in front of them, casting out the demon, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' wisdom, Talks about Solomon's wisdom. Jonah's preaching. Not enough. You know, the Queen of Sheba came, heard the wisdom of Solomon, and she paid attention to it. And so Jesus says, she'll rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation, and she will condemn them. But a greater than Solomon is here, Jesus says. The kingdom of God has arrived in the words and work of Jesus Christ. The men of Nineveh will do the same thing. They repented at the teaching of Jonah, something greater than Jonah is here, Jesus says. Jesus and the coming of his kingdom is greater than all of these signs. They had his words, they had his work. The ultimate sign would be his death and resurrection. At this point, they didn't have that, but they had all the signs, plenty of signs. They weren't looking for a sign to prove they were looking to disprove in their unbelief. 
So Luke is emphasizing uh, properly receiving the truth, hearing the truth, the truth interpreted and empowered by the Spirit, and acting upon that. Whether it's the wisdom of Solomon received by the Queen of Sheba, the preaching of Jonah received by the men of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, or the work and the words of Jesus. All of that matters when it comes to eternal things. You know the Word of God. You've heard the Word of God. All have sinned. Because you sin, you're guilty before God. The wages of sin is death, not just dying here, but eternal death. We're born dead in trespasses and sin. We die physically. Leads to eternal death. But whoever call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Life comes to those who believe, who hear the word of God and respond in repentance and faith in the sacrifice offered on your behalf. It's really quite a scene, you know. uh, They saw him praying uh, at the beginning of chapter 11. They wanted to know the secret, so he laid out for them this model prayer. And at the end of the prayer, verse 13 of chapter 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The highest request is to ask to receive the Holy Spirit at salvation, and then continuously in His filling. And that Holy Spirit, Jesus said He did His works by the Spirit. That Holy Spirit was the secret to His power over demons. By the finger of God, by the Spirit of God, He cast out demons. That Holy Spirit is the secret to having a true relationship with God. The Spirit of God who comes and convinces you of your sin. He convinces you of righteousness that you don't have. He convinces you that a judgment is coming. And when He saves, He then continuously teaches the Word of God. So the Holy Spirit is the secret of a true relationship with God. Not just... uh, Family, not just physical relationship. Not earthly family, but spiritual family. Adopted into the family of God. It's the secret to uh, the demonstration of our witness. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live. Stand up like this woman. We don't need a sign. We have the Word of God. And we believe it. And we live accordingly. The Lord Jesus is a great Savior. 
The Lord Jesus is our only Savior. You can't reform your life, but the Spirit of God can. Believe in Jesus, who will send the Spirit, and you will live an abundant life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Father, we plead with you. Father, we ask that your spirit be active in our lives. Lord, dead in our sins, we had no hope. Without you, no promises. When the Spirit made us alive, we're convinced of the truths of your word. We begin to understand them as we go. We begin to become stronger in the faith because of the Spirit's enablement. Help us, we pray. Lord, and save those who are unbelieving. Not realizing they're bound by the strong man in his palace, having his way in their life. Lord, show them yourself so that they might see themselves. And they might run to Jesus Christ, their only hope. In whose name we pray, amen.